Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Sarah McDooling. I'm very excited to be here today with, well, to be remotely podcasting with my <laughs> colleague, Shanu Prasad, and the amazing Alexandra Bracken. Hello. <laughs> uh, welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to be talking to you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks again for having me. Now, before we launch into an in-depth discussion of Greek mythology, um, I thought for the people <laughs> listening who maybe haven't read Law yet, could you just tell them a bit about your new book? Okay, so I have like two pitches for this book. The first one is the very short elevator pitch, which is like it's um, an older Percy Jackson meets The Hunger Games. I described it to my editor when I was kind of pitching the original idea to her as being like, Percy Jackson's mean older sister with scars and a bad attitude just to try to capture the tone of it because I love Percy Jackson um, but I think Percy is a lot more humorous than (laughs) this book is even though the Percy Jackson books are just like wonderful adventures and have really amazing epic stakes too. This one is definitely a more mature read I think than especially the early Percy Jackson books so just some content FYI. But my for this book is that it is centered on 17-year-old Lore. She was born and raised in New York City, and she grew up in this kind of cult-like secret society of hunters, all of whom are descended from some of ancient Greece's greatest heroes, so like Achilles or in Lore's case, Perseus. And so every seven years for seven days, these families participate in a hunt known as the Agon during which nine of the Greek gods are cursed to walk the earth as mortal for attempting to betray Zeus. And if one of these hunters can kill, can kill a god, they can take that god's power and immortality. But the big catch is that seven years later, these new gods become one of the hunted themselves. So Lore has completely left this world behind after the murder of her family during the last hunt. She wants nothing more to do with it. But unfortunately for Lore, the hunt is back in New York City this year, and on the very first night, a gravely wounded Athena shows up on her doorstep seeking Lore's help, but also offering the one thing Lore always thought was impossible, which is vengeance for her murdered family. So it's a very like um, twisty, action-packed book with some nice romance thrown in, if that's your thing. Um, but yeah, it was so much fun to write, and I still can't believe I finally got to publish it, and it finally came out this year. Yeah, I read in your uh, blog post that uh, that you know that you actually posted pretty much almost a year ago now, which seems crazy because we you know we've all know what the last year has been like, particularly yeah. in America, has been <laughs> you know something. Um, but that you know that you started writing that you started writing the book or you finished writing the book in the first draft in two thousand and nineteen. So it's actually been you know quite quite some time before like before the books actually come out. Can yeah, you tell and us a bit I. About- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, what was funny was. Um, I keep a, I keep a five-year journal. Do you, are you guys familiar with the concept where it's okay? So it's like a journal and then they're on every page, like for each day, there are like five spaces. And so each year on that day, you write like a quick one or two liner about what you did that day. And it was very funny for me to, you know, start again with the new year to flip back to January 1st and to see 2019 and 2020 it's like I will never finish lore I am still (laughs) editing lore and then a lore came out today lore hit the New York Times list today so it was like very funny to kind of see that um, progression of it but you know I think what kind of what happened here is that 
in 2018, the darkest mind or the darkest minds film came out. And then I had the darkest legacy come out, which is the kind of fourth novel in the darkest mind series. It's a companion to the original trilogy. And I was feeling really burnt out. And I told my editor about this, my publisher about it. And I was like, would you mind if I kind of took a little bit more time with this next YA book? But I also like, messed up and thought that I had less time than I actually did to turn the book in. So I ended up accidentally turning the book in really early because I right. thought it was coming out <laughs> January um, 2021 or 2020 instead of January 2021. So I had like all of 2020 and most of like 2019 to edit this book. It was wild. I've never had this much time to edit a book. Um, and it ended up kind of needing it because you know, my publisher ended up having furloughs during the pandemic. It was sort of like, um, it ended up being kind of a relay race in terms of editors because, you know, one editor left and then the next editor left to go to a different house. And then the third editor got furloughed. So it was really, Lore went on quite a journey in 2020. And I, that's, I think one of the reasons why I still can't believe it's done and it's finally (laughs) out because it was just such a process to actually get it on the shelves. But it ended up really benefiting the book to have all of those editorial eyes on it, to have all that time to work on it. So I am yeah. grateful, but it was a very long process. <laughs> I'm, I'm presuming for uh, whatever's next, you probably won't be doing that same. <laughs> yeah, I think I have to turn in my next book. Um, I think I promised the editor June 1st and I was like, oh, that's like, that's actually very soon. <laughs> Maybe I should have done July. That really snuck up on me, but. Well, now I immediately want to know about the new book. You can't just throw yeah. out something like that. <laughs> the new book is, um, it's not Greek mythology, but it is another contemporary fantasy. And it's similar to lore in that it uses a mythology in a different way. It's not necessarily a retelling. That's the question I think I get the most about lore is, is this book a retelling of any one myth? And it's really not. It's my kind of interpretation of what a modern myth might feel like where you have, um, you know, all of these very powerful and ancient beings set in our world, kind of in that fish out of water scenario. And then, um, but I wanted to capture the really big epic stakes in the darkness that you find in the original myths and have it be present in lore. Um, And so the new book is similar to that, but it uses more Celtic mythology and a little bit of Arthurian lore. But I do want to come back to Greek mythology eventually. I just needed maybe like a little breather after (laughs) my lore marathon. Well, I like that your breather goes from Greek mythology to, uh, you know, sort of a bit of Celtic um, Celtic mythology. And um, that's perfect. This is the the magic of Alexandra Bracken, because it feels to me that you're an author who every time you start a new series or write a new book, it's significantly different from the last thing that you did. Yeah. Um, But they still have the feel of one of your books. And I just, I mean, I I really admire that. And I wonder, you know, I'm interested to know, like, like your process of um, coming up with ideas. Like, for example, the, the, just the whole concept of the, um, and I'm going to say this wrong, but I got Yeah, you, it's, I think it's, I see my, it's so shameful. My Greek is really bad, but I think it's, it's like a, it's like a gone. Um, I'm sure someone out there who speaks ancient Greek just like cringed, but um, (laughs) yeah, it's sort of like an own sound at the end. Um, But yeah, I, I've been very lucky in that I've been allowed to experiment a lot and 
to be able to write the books that I really want to write. So I've done everything from kind of um, dystopian to um, more of like a cute middle grade that feels spooky and Halloween-y to time travel to now lore. And I think I'm kind of getting into a groove with lore and with my new project where I'm kind of exploring the idea of you know, modern interpretations of these ancient stories. And it's fun to get back to contemporary fantasy, which we used to call urban fantasy or paranormal fantasy back in the day, but I feel like we've rebranded it as the publishing industry. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, but, you know, for the longest time, people were like very burnt out on um, the more like um, contemporary fantasy side. So it's nice to be able to get back into that again. Um, but yeah, in terms of like where the idea for lore came from, I always have what I call like an idea soup in my brain where I have a bunch of things I know I want to write about. I actually keep a running list. It's a document in my computer. Um, this is a trick I learned from the author Jen Lynn Barnes, who just recently yeah. released the really fun book, um, The Inheritance Games. I love that out. book. Yeah. I know. It's so fun. Jen I is, need the sequel. When is it coming? Do you have a line she, on that? <laughs> I know she's amazing I love Jen and Jen started publishing when she was so young and she's also like has this amazing science brain and one of the things she's really studied is like the role that the id plays in storytelling and so one of her recommendations is to keep an id list which is essentially just like tropes different scenarios different character types um settings just like certain little story elements that you love so that when you're writing and you're feeling stumped or you feel like you're kind of dreading coming back to the page you can look at this id list and be like what can i add to this scene to make me really want to write it to make it feel exciting to the reader and so i have that on like a smaller scale and on a bigger scale i have like story ideas that i want to get around to writing eventually so um, I had Greek mythology on the list forever. I wanted to figure out some sort of way to not necessarily do a straightforward Greek mythology retelling, but to kind of come at it from a different way, make it feel a little special and interesting. And then I, I knew I wanted to write a competition book, but it took me forever to figure out that those two things actually work together really well because of yeah. the role competitions played and the role hunts played in um, ancient Greek society and so societies, I should say it wasn't just one, but I, I grew up loving the movie, The Highlander. Did you ever, did you guys ever watch yeah. that film? I remember the show more than the movie. Do yeah, so I don't know why, I, I really love those like 80s and 90s fantasy movies. And so I love the idea of these like immortal beings kind of fighting with each other over the centuries, but I knew, obviously, I wasn't writing the Highlander fan fiction. I came <laughs> at it in a very different way, <laughs> but that was sort of like, oh, I've, I've always loved that idea, and I know how I can make this feel like wholly my own while still like giving a very fond nod to the Highlander, which is a movie I just I loved as a kid. I was like a very dark child, apparently, <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's really where it came from. And the other part of idea soup is that I'm really inspired by usually what's going on in the world around me as I'm trying to brainstorm. And so the emotional core of the story, I was working on kind of figuring out Lore's arc and um, the real like heart of the story, the real message of it right around the rise of the Me Too movement. So I was reading a lot of like feminist essays and it was reminding me of, um, you know, just like my own experiences growing up trying to navigate the world and how we, you know, 
as people who identify as women, we like will alter our behavior in certain scenarios, usually without even realizing it. Or I was thinking a lot about how I used to kind of su suppress my ambition, even as a writer, because I didn't want it to like appear unflattering to the rest of the world, to society. Um, and so things like that really ended up coming into the idea soup, got a nice stir around, and then the story kind of just came together from there. Sometimes I don't get that lucky and the, you know, it never sort of becomes cohesive and delicious. That's a weird way to put that. But um, <laughs> yeah, so sometimes it doesn't work out and it's like I start a new pot of soup, idea soup, yeah. but this one really <laughs> yeah. worked together. It was like magic. And I think a lot of it too was um, Medusa constantly comes up. She's been kind of reclaimed as a feminist figure, feminist icon. And the idea of female rage, that was something that was very present in the conversation with me too. And it really reminded me of being a kid and all of the issues that I had, even as a child with Greek mythology and the very problematic content that it has. Um, but yeah, those stories, they're so amazing and they are so dark and so twisted and so morally gray, which makes them, I think, really entrancing in a way. And yet they have a lot of problematic content including sexual violence. Which is what makes it so ripe for a story that um, with a strong feminist uh, viewpoint. And I'm so glad you brought up the inspiration of that because I was discussing with Shani before the podcast, we were like, what are we gonna ask her? And I was like, I really wanna <laughs> talk about feminism, but I don't see how it's a question. I just have to say, no, the book is really feminist. Let's discuss. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. One of the really yeah, I was going to say one of the really interesting things, um, this was like a personal journey that I went on where I was, as a kid, I really loved Athena. Like she was my favorite goddess. And then as I got older, I started to have this almost like discomfort with her as a figure. And I couldn't quite figure out how to explain it. Like there was always something where I was like, oh. And then I had a wonderful professor in college who talked about how Athena, like the image of her, her story, it ultimately became like a tool of the patriarchy. Like if you think yeah. about it, she's kind of like the original. Do you guys remember, this probably was like early 2000s when there was like the strong female character debate where at yeah. the time it was really just, um, you know, these female characters with like traditionally masculine traits, I guess you yeah. could say. Yeah. 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 Um, Athena is like kind of the original, <laughs> not like the other girls, cool girl. <laughs> like, and I think what I was responding to as a kid was like the way like men adored her and like worshiped Athena and like that approval that she got from her father and from, you know, all of the these powerful male heroes in ancient Greek society. So it, it was like a really interesting thing to then revisit that in lore and to have lore kind of address that directly with Athena because one of the biggest issues that lore brings up in this story is why Athena punishes Medusa when Medusa is a victim of a sexual yeah. assault. Like why was that the worse crime than the person who actually, or the God Poseidon who actually assaulted her and why Athena never chose a female hero to like mentor and to lead on a journey. So I was like, I was just working out all of my like childhood <laughs> anger. <laughs> like, that's that's it's just following me through life apparently. <laughs> and these are all like, and, about it, you right? know, that, this obviously yeah. is not originating with me. These are all 
things yeah. that have been written about in both classic scholarship and in feminist scholarship too. So I cannot claim the idea, but I wanted the story to really resonate with those voices. It's very, it's a very fertile storytelling ground to address those issues. And I think during this time where I think women everywhere are looking backwards and, and like reassessing their own experiences and, and, and just their experiences in general, a book like this is, I'm so excited that this book is written for you. I wish this book had been written when I was the target readership. Like when, when I was oh, young, thank I, I you. wish it had existed. It would have been... That's what I was going to say. It's it's really it's really fantastic that it has been written, um, you know, as a YA novel because I think a lot of this kind of you know as you're talking about this, you know, doing these retelling of Greek myths or reimagining or just you know looking at you know why do we love them? Why did we study them? What is it that we can learn from them? A lot of it's gone into very literary or very adult fiction, which is great. Yes, but it can be a little bit, you know, not as accessible. Whereas you've managed to work this, um, these great concepts into a story that is also like just the most gripping story that you just can't, like I read it all in like one go because I was just like, I need, <laughs> need to know Thank you. what's going to happen. Yeah. And I just think it's so wonderful that like, you know, teenagers will be able to like really like do this. And then I can just imagine afterwards, if they haven't already studied Greek mythology at school, they like going to go straight to the, you know, sort of source material and try and find out so how much of this is like what they were actually like and what was different about it? And I think that's... And really all of the character names, because I feel like you're quite <laughs> deliberate in, in many of the character names, um, you know, and the myths that they're connected to. It's like, I don't know, it's like a rich Easter egg land. Because Yeah, I really wanted to, I really wanted those themes and those um, more feminist takes on the myth to feel accessible because a lot of the times I think it's not like, in my experience, I wasn't really exposed to those ideas until I was in college. And so I wanted it to feel very accessible. Um, and also, yeah, I, so one of the editors I worked with, her name was Marissa. She was wonderful. She's someone who is like, not a super Greek mythology nerd like I was. And she was like, I need you to like, pull back a little bit on like the deeper cuts like nobody <laughs> nobody's gonna care nobody will notice but I left like a good number of them in and it's been really wonderful to see um you know it works on different levels so if you have no um real background in Greek mythology you sort of know who the gods are what's interesting is that in America I don't know if this was the case for you guys but um in America like Greek mythology is often taught in schools. We had a whole unit on it in middle school. And so it's very familiar, I think, to a lot of kids here. And especially because of Percy Jackson. Percy Jackson has yeah. just like completely opened that entire mythological world to younger readers. So yeah, it was like I knew I knew I wanted to kind of insert some like deeper cuts and some more subtle references. But if you have no background in Greek mythology and you're like, oh, Oh dear, I don't know the difference between <laughs> Artemis and Athena. Um, we do fine. have like a character guide in the back of yeah. the book. That is, I you know, I was like, we don't need that. My editor was like, we need this. We need to put this in the back of the book. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think that's always helpful though. Even if you don't need it, you never know who's going to be reading your book, right? So those sorts of things, yeah. you know, that's why we have editors to do that kind of stuff. You know, it's true, and right. because <laughs> the, because the book is standalone, it's like the way I would have approached this book if it had been more of a series would have been very different. And it, I probably 
would have been a little bit slower to introduce, you know, cast members, but you have to like accomplish a lot within that very short, well, the book is not short, but like within those (laughs) single book, you have to accomplish a lot in terms of world building and introducing the cast. So Yeah. yeah, I really, um, I was like, I do not regret including the character list in the back of the book for everybody. And the, there's actually even a chart of the different, um, hunter families and bloodlines at the very beginning of the book. So you have those two references. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, (laughs) Speaking, speaking of the standaloneness of the book, um, Mm -hmm. what what, first, this is a twofold question. First of all, um, how challenging or or difficult was it for you to move to standalone after, you know, you're so well known for your Darkest Minds series and um, your duology uh, was it really was it really different to write standalone? And then, as an addendum to that question, will it definitely be standalone, or would you ever consider <laughs> revisiting? <laughs> you know, it's this is really interesting because usually I kind of have a sense of like, do I want the story to be a trilogy? Do I want it to be? Um, does it make more sense to be a duology? But for this one, I I like knew from the beginning. I was like, this is a this is a standalone story because I really want there to be like real resolution at the end of it. I want it to feel like, you know, even though stories like the Odyssey came in different parts, like it is still kind of one cohesive story in the end um, with kind of a straight linear narrative in terms of um, just following Odysseus on his journey home. Even actually, now that I've said that, that's that's not totally true because you do see Ithaca and what's going on there too. But I just knew I wanted it to be one cohesive story. And so um, that was a challenge. I The interesting thing is like, even though, for example, The Darkest Legacy is a standalone book, I could still use a lot of the emotional references from the trilogy. And, you know, you can build in a lot of um, emotional resonance just by doing certain callbacks. And I did not have that with this book. I really had to build everything from the ground up. And that was my first experience trying to do that. And so I definitely worked very hard on this one. It was it was an absolute challenge for me. And in terms of like, if there'll be another one, I don't know. I would love to write more within this world. I feel like Lore's story really does wrap up. And I've been yeah amazed by the amount of readers who are like oh thank god this is just a standalone i like can't do another series i don't want to like wait years yeah (laughs) but to have a real bt book as well you know not like uh you know some standalones you go yep and then i need you know but you're missing out on so much the best of both worlds in this book because as you said there is so much that happens but it happens within such a short time period and i think that was also fantastic um how did you pick the time, the, the, the fact that it's a week, is that just because it's like it's a classic thing that it's seven days or was there? Yeah, you know, I don't, you know, I, I thought it would just be like very neat and tidy seven days, every seven yeah. years for seven days. Seven there days, wasn't yeah. really a significance to the number. Um, I just like knew I wanted to like, so it would be easier for the reader to remember that repetition of the number yeah. seven. Um, I almost did seven gods too. And then I was like, oh no, I want to like, be able to expand a little bit more on the different yeah. new gods and all of that and get into that a bit more. But yeah, the world is actually pretty big. And that was one of the challenges was like trying to figure out how to pace the world building information while knowing that this story is really set over a week. And so 
when we were going through and doing edits on it, my editor and I had to really make like an hourly schedule of what was happening in the story over the course of these seven days to make sure that it was, like, <laughs> you know, that they remembered that, you know, cause you have to acknowledge that they have to sleep at some point, they have yeah. to eat at some point. Um, and just to make sure that we weren't, you know, having this week feel like a month or feel yeah. like one day. Didn't um, end up like 24, so. the series where you're like, yeah. there was no time to go to the bathroom at any point in that 24, 24 hour period. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think it was, I think I like learned this trick from Dan Brown and his masterclass. I like, I love watching other authors' masterclasses. I find it like endlessly inspiring to hear authors talk about their craft and how they approach storytelling. And he was talking about how you really need like a countdown and a crucible. So you like need to have, you have to set a limit in terms of like how long the story is taking place over. And um, so the reader gets that second little dose of tension, knowing that there is like this countdown clock in the background slowly ticking down. Absolutely. Um, I would like to jump in and quickly talk about the setting of the book. Um, okay. Because this book is set in New York and I, I feel like reading it, you can just feel a whole lot of love for New York coming through. Um, and I wanted to know what your what your personal connection is to New York. And I think that I did read that you lived there. I did. I um, So I went to school at um, a place called the College of William & Mary, which is in Williamsburg, Virginia. And this is, um, Williamsburg is like a Colonial, Colonial Williamsburg is a reenactment of the 18th century. Yeah. So the school is literally at one end. It's the second oldest university in the country. It's the school is literally at one end of this historic street known as um, Duke of Gloucester Street. And then you have like the, the reconstructed House of Burgesses at the other end. So it was like I was really in a bubble in college and I had no desire to move to New York until it came down to me trying to figure out like what I actually wanted to do after graduating college because I sold my very first book my second semester of senior year. But unfortunately, it's really hard to make a living as a writer and I'm very fortunate I can do this full time now. So I, but I knew then that I needed to have some sort of day job and um, I was originally going to go to a law school and then, you know, I studied to take the LSAT, which is our um, test that we take for admissions. I studied, I took like an LSAT course and then no joke in the middle of taking the LSAT. I'm usually not this dramatic, but in the middle of taking the LSAT, I sat back and was like, what am I doing here? I don't want to be a lawyer. I'm like making all of these bargains with myself where I'll like just be a lawyer for long enough to like pay off my law school debts. Like, Why would I do that? I don't want to be a lawyer. My brain doesn't work in this logical way. I should not do this. And so it wasn't until I like went back to school for my senior year and went to the guidance center and was like, please help me. I no longer have a future. Um, <laughs> but they were like, well, you know so much about publishing. So why don't you like actually work in publishing? Cause I had done so much research into agents and how the industry worked in order to sell my book. And so I ended up moving to New York and I worked, um, I lived there for, I think six years. Um, the schedule, it's so funny. I feel like those years are kind of one long blur to me now because the way I essentially approached it was that I had my, my publishing day job. My first job was as an editorial assistant. I worked on a lot of, um, uh, middle grade boy books. So it was a lot of like boogers, bugs, and sports. <laughs> um, 
but I switched into doing marketing because I need, I felt like I needed more of a work-life balance because when you're an editor, you end up taking a lot of your reading home with you and a lot of your edits home with you. And so I was reading so much for my boss that I didn't really have time to write. And I was like, what I really want is to be a writer. This is what I absolutely want. I want to, you know, keep publishing my own books. And so I switched into marketing, which was great and had a little bit better of a balance. Um, But yeah, I lived in New York and I actually found it, it's funny because it's sort of like, New York is like the boyfriend where you, the ex-boyfriend where you like broke up with it and then enough (laughs) broke up with him and like enough time has passed where you forget about the bad things and only remember the good things. That's how I feel about New York now. I like, I definitely romanticize it a little bit, but I... I am naturally um, such a shy and introverted person, and I am so grateful that I lived in New York, even though I found it really, really tough. Um, it was very, it's very draining if you are an introvert because you are constantly surrounded by people. You are constantly like having to fight for everything. It's like a, it's like a fight to get to Target. It's a fight to get to the grocery store and it's a fight to kind of do your laundry. But it really gave me like a lot of grit and it made me very um, independent and self-sufficient. So I'm like, I'm so grateful for my years in New York and there really is no place in the world like it. Like it has, the city has such a personality. I love New Yorkers. Like I think they're amazing. They seem on one hand to be like very standoffish and kind of cold, but that's actually not the truth. New Yorkers, I think do really look out for each other. Um, My one like case in point on this, that one point was like, I was walking home and I was talking to my mom on, just on my cell phone. And I saw out of the corner of my eye, a taxi cab had like hit a bike delivery guy and like knocked the bike delivery guy off. And like out of nowhere, these four women come running over one, like slams her hand down on the front of the taxi and was like, you are not leaving. The other one is like calling 911. The other one is like on the ground, making sure the bike delivery guy is okay. So that's like, that's like the New Yorker spirit to me. It's like a very no nonsense, like you know, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it is a hard place to live. It's a very expensive place to live too. It did not make sense to continue living there when I left to write full time, but I love visiting and I'm really bummed because I really wanted to go back and yeah. um, like take photos of the different places mentioned in the book and to kind of walk through some of the paths that they take to make sure I had like gotten everything right. Um, and then sadly the coronavirus made that impossible, but oh, yeah. I'm like dying to go back to New York and visit my friends there, but it's, it's a wonderful place and it definitely comes through. Um, well, I hope it comes through. Oh, yes. Thor's, yes. Thor's yeah. personality. It definitely does. Um, yeah. It's one of my favorite places as well. And so um, I felt, cause of course we can't travel and, you know, yeah. we, you know, Australians, we love traveling overseas. We love it. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, reading it, reading it was really, really lovely to be able to feel like, oh yeah, I remember walking past that area or yeah, I can totally see how that could happen in Central Park and you could completely, something to, like, you know, you could hide all that and, you know, it was really, it was really great. So I, I think you would definitely yeah. achieve, achieve that goal. So for me anyway. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> can I tell you guys something funny though? This is like, I don't know, I don't know why I didn't realize this. I guess I wasn't paying attention when I was living in the city, but like, I had so many scenes of this book set in like alleyways and behind buildings. And the copy editor was like, there are really only a couple of proper alleyways left <laughs> yeah. in New York because the real estate is so valuable there that like every TV show that like films or shoots in New York City and is set in an alleyway is like set in one of two alleyways. <laughs> yeah. Like it's always the same <laughs> dark and dingy alley. Um, 
And so I had to really reconfigure like where they were meeting. And I had to explain that like in New York, sometimes you get these like little slivers of spaces between buildings and kind of like a little yeah, okay. courtyard. Yeah. So it, I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, like I got to revoke my former New Yorker card <laughs> that I didn't realize there are no alleyways. You very cities. much associate New York with alleyways. I am, this is news to me. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that wild? It's like <laughs> I don't know if it's like because of, yeah. I I, I, I blame guess, TV. Like, I blame yeah, TV. And, you don't, they're really yeah. good at making those two alleyways look like many, many, many different. <laughs> alleyways, yeah, so it's that's wild. That's a set design. <laughs> so. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank you, copy editor. But yeah. also, you know, my um, my publisher and the copy editor and everybody there was based in New York. And so there were even like a couple of things when we were going through copy edits, like a couple lines, there's like a big event that happens kind of towards the end of the book that puts New York in a bad state. And it kind of like isolates New York from the rest of the country and world. I don't, I don't know how to put this quite without um, spoiling it. Yeah, no, that's, there were that's good, I think. lines yeah. that where the copy editor was like, you know, I, I just like, do you, do you maybe want to like tweak this line? It's like hitting a little close to home right now with COVID. And oh, the yeah. weird thing was like, I had done research on um, disaster response in the city too. So I like sort of knew like where they would set up tents and where they yeah. would um, have these little um, recovery centers and all of that. And then they were like using some of them during COVID. Oh, yeah, so it right. was, yeah, so it was definitely something I didn't expect, but it did kind of filter in through the book. And I, I had always thought the book, thought of the book as being set in 2020. And I was like, I guess it's set in 2019. Yeah, I think that's yeah. been one of the things that, you know, when we've speak, you know, spoken to a lot of authors in the past year, and it's just the crazy coincidences or, you know, they were writing a book well before, you know, anything happened or they, you know, started the book later or something. And it just... You just don't realize how much is connected, uh, even yeah. subconsciously, until until you kind of get to that point. You're like, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. it really makes <laughs> you believe in the idea of a collective conscience because all of these. Yeah, <laughs> that's like that's <laughs> that's what I call like the dreaming part of writing. What that when your subconscious is working and making all of these connections and you're not even aware of it and then you read it later and you're like oh I thought I wrote a book about this but I actually wrote a book about that and that's like one of those magical things about writing and storytelling yeah but it really is interesting how everything ultimately does connect like you guys are saying um, um oh, we're running we're, we're running uh, you know where I'm going to take the conversation now we're running a bit low on time and before we end I just really really want to talk to you about Brightly Woven um, okay because I am a huge fan of this book. I've, I've loved it for ages. It's um, it's somewhere on the shelf there behind me. And I was so excited to see that it had come out in a graphic novel version, um, which I've now also read and loved. And so I just want to talk to you a bit about what it was like to revisit that story and sort of retell it in a different medium. And also, like, now that this graphic novel exists, <laughs> is there a possibility that... Um, that Sidel and North story might be continuing in some way? Yeah, so Brightly Woven, um, a lot of people think The Darkest Minds is my debut novel, but it was actually Brightly Woven. Darkest Minds ended up becoming sort of like my re-debut because it was such a genre shift and it um, was published by a bigger publisher, whereas Brightly Woven was published by Egmont USA, which is no longer in business. And so when they closed their doors, then 
Brightly Woven Went Out of Print. And this was the book that I sold um, while I was still in college. And um, it was it was tough. Um, actually, I, you know, looking back on it now, I can't believe I made it work where I was like editing the book at the same time I was studying for finals. And, you know, you have all of your second semester senior things where you're like yeah. trying to see all your friends and do a bunch of stuff and all that. And I just became like Gollum in my little dorm <laughs> where I was like, I would only ever get my food to go from the cafeteria. And I would like eat by myself in my room and edit this book. I was like, not telling my sorority sisters that I was like alone writing my wizard book in my room. Um, but yeah, it was such a, it was such a fun and just amazing experience. It was very stressful and very, a lot of hard work. Um, and I, I did, I love that book so much. It's definitely not a perfect book. I, when I, I was sort of like dreading rereading it when we started talking about the graphic novel, because I guess it's like actors who can't watch themselves on screen after the <laughs> yeah. book is published. I like can't bear to like listen to the book. I can't bear to read it again. I think it's because you can't change anything at that yeah. point. And you're like, oh gosh, it's so like, I phrase that so awkwardly. I wish I could go back and redo it. Um, but when Brightly Woven went out of print, oh, I should, I guess I should explain. It's, it's a very sweet, what I would call like a light fantasy. And when it was published, it was definitely YA, but now it would almost feel, it almost feels a little bit more like preteen because I think YA has gotten much darker and much more mature over the last yeah. 10 years. Brightly Woven came out in 2010. Um, so YA as a genre has shifted. And so that was something else I was very conscious of, but I, I was such a baby writer at the, when I was writing this book and editing this book. And I, really like didn't know how to push back on my editor when my editor was asking me to make certain cuts and all of that. And so I had like a very complex relationship with the book. And when Egmont closed its doors, I wasn't really sure I wanted to necessarily republish it. Like there were a lot of sensitivity things I wish I could go back. I wish I was like hoping to go back and change. Like nobody really has a character description in that book. I noticed there are a oh. lot of like yeah, it's funny. Like no one, no one is really well described except maybe Sid and North themselves. I was like, Whoa. <laughs> how did that like happen? But um, yeah, and you know, it was a very white cast of characters, um, and but it was like a very sweet and kind of straightforward story that I, I think a lot of thankfully a lot of people ended up enjoying, and those were the readers who really um, later helped me build word of mouth with the Darkest Minds because they followed me across genres, my first instance of crossing genres. But um, when the rights reverted, I kind of sat on them for a while trying to figure out, like, did I want to kind of want to rewrite the book? Did I want to, like, just put it back out there? It had been pirated so many times. It, like, you, like, you can find it on the internet, folks, if you really want to read the original <laughs> version of the book. Um, so I had the idea because colors play such, a, like, such an a role in the story that it would actually make for a really beautiful graphic novel and I brought it to my publisher and thankfully they agreed and we decided to kind of lean into the fact that it felt preteen and age it down a little bit so it's yeah. more of like middle grade more um, that preteen feel the characters themselves are a little bit younger it still has a sweet romance but maybe not quite as much romance but it's still like it was really interesting to go back and revisit that book and to feel sort of reassured by how much I've grown as a writer, but also to find it still like kind of a delightful little read. I was like, oh, 
okay, I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't like to actually enjoy <laughs> reading this book. It is a lovely book. It is true. There's it magic is, in that book. It feels yeah, like, and, um, like it has the feel to me of a, a, a classic fantasy book, like from like Diana Wynne Jones uh, era. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I, I wish it was that good, but <laughs> I will, uh, you know, I, I just realized I was about to explain what the actual story was about. So I will just like give this, I interrupted myself. My brain is like, <laughs> It's like hurting cats sometimes. My thoughts are all over the place. Again, why I could never be a lawyer. <laughs> um, um, so Brightly Woven is about a girl named Sidel. She's grown up in this very deserty village that's undergone like a historic drought. Some in- light inspiration there, having grown up in Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one day a wizard comes to her village and brings rain, but he also brings news of like an impending war. And then he and Sidel end up going on this journey together to try to prevent their country from going to war. And there are wizards and wizard duels. And it really is like a traditional, like we are crossing this country type of journey to get to the capital and um, having a big conflict in the process and trying to not fall in love with each other. But yeah, I love those characters so much. And I pitched, like I said, the idea of a graphic novel to my editor and they, because I don't know the first thing about writing a graphic novel, they luckily brought on two really wonderful collaborators and I got to weigh in on the script and I got to incorporate some of those changes that I was really hoping to make, including making Sidel, the main character, a lot more proactive and help making sure that it was her choices that were um, propelling the plot forward rather than having her be kind of at the mercy of the events that are happening across the plot. Um, but yeah, it was, it was wild to go back. And I, I, I hope if the graphic novel does well enough that they'll continue, they'll like consider continuing it. I have no news on that front, but it is a very sweet little graphic novel. And I think it'd be wonderful if there's a kid in your life who really could use a break from Zoom school from reality. So I guess your situation in Australia is not quite as dire as it is not here, still in we're, the state. Yeah, we're pretty lucky. But I, I still have um, a niece who would absolutely love this. Um, and it's, you know, she's, she won't be listening to this, so I can say that I'll be getting it for her birthday. So um, yes. <laughs> regardless of you the have, situation. You'll have to let me know what she thinks of it. Good. Yeah, I'm sure she'll love it. <laughs> she, she's, and I think that's the other great thing, you know, I know we have to wrap up, but um, is that, um, you know, for people that aren't, especially for kids that aren't, um, you know, are more visual, that aren't really great at reading and don't have long, long attention spans, the graphic novels that are coming out now have these uh, wonderful stories as well as like the attention sort of grabbing um, yeah. you know, illustrations and so on so that you can still get stories and give, give kids stories that they can love and learn from, um, but in a different way than, you know, just when they're not, you know, necessarily being able to read just, you know, Absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing. Books with, our, books with just words. What, no, it's so true because, you know, I, I get asked a lot for recommendations, especially from parents who have kids who are really reluctant readers. And a lot of the times it's, it's not that the kids don't love reading. It's like they're intimidated by picking up the actual book and it seems so long. And, you know, I feel like concentration is harder than ever in this day and age. Um, and so one way to get kids into the habit of reading and, um, you know, just going through and like learning to love storytelling, learning to love stories is a graphic novel because they are still reading and they get to process a story in a slightly different way that might feel like 
a little bit less work, but a lot of these graphic novels are just, they're so wonderful. They have complex storytelling. They have great cast of characters. So reading graphic novels is definitely still reading. And if you have a reluctant reader in your life, it is absolutely the way I would recommend. It's sort of like the little sneaky backdoor into yeah. getting yeah. the kid to read like a, a proper, proper novel. Well, I guess proper isn't the word I'm looking for, but a traditional yeah. novel. Return a word, word yeah. only. Words only novel. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really true. I think graphic novels are a, a gateway to a lot of kids to the becoming like just uh, bookworms. Um, yeah, and they have so much like wonderful and original storytelling too. I like I love a graphic novel, so I hope yeah. I can write more down the line now that I kind of understand the process. Thankfully, Lee Dergroon, um, who is very experienced as a graphic novel um, adapter and author writer, I guess. Um, she was really leading the script on this graphic novel, but now I feel like I have, a, I have the hang of it. So hopefully I'll be able to work on some other ones in the future. Oh, I hope so. This, the brightly woven graphic novel is stunning. I really loved it. I loved um, seeing that story come to life visually. It was, it's beautiful. Oh, that makes me so happy. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, it's, that book went on, again, such a, such a long journey, but um, it like, having the graphic novel come out felt like such a nice bookend in a way because as I said before my feelings about the actual novel had been so complex and now I just have like really wonderful good feelings about the story again which is really nice yeah and perfect for people that haven't had the opportunity uh you know that have come of age after the book itself yeah. they can come back in and they can read that and they can read a much longer but still yeah <laughs> 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 He's mine too. Yay! I, I, I'm silly and I like didn't bring one with me. <laughs> but that's okay. I was like, Where? Unlike some authors, remember what happened in your book. So you didn't need, you didn't need the book in front of you to, to tell us all about the book, which was wonderful. Oh, <laughs> I, I like so love chatting with you guys. Thank you again for having me and for just like hanging out with me this afternoon it, slash your morning. <laughs> it has been wonderful talking to you. Um, we really appreciate your time. And, um, you know, and I hope maybe you might come back again when the next book comes out, which sounds amazing. I'm, I love Arthurian uh, and Celtic legend. So yeah, I would love I'm already to. excited. I, I'm <laughs> still hoping. I, I've never been to Australia. I was going to say been. maybe even in person. <laughs> I know. I was like, I'm like, please please i need i need to just yeah. go down you know i think i think it's going to get to the point especially after covid where i'm like i'm booking my own trip and i will just like cruise by all of the bookstores if i have to i will like i don't even need an official event i will just like show up and sign everybody's books don't worry so. once we're allowed to travel again i am sure that there will be no shortage of invitations for you yeah. and um, oh i hope so i it's definitely on my bucket list to visit it's just yeah, and Hopefully I hope you guys get to travel back to the States. And yeah, I can't wait for things to feel a little bit normal. It's interesting though, because I think everything is everything will change a little bit. We have mm. just shifted so much in all of our lives, but in some ways it's been so wonderful to have that reminder of how important like human connection is and Absolutely. being able to be with our loved ones and to really slow down a little bit. But yeah. yeah. I was like, nothing really good comes out of a deadly pandemic, but, you know, I guess there are lessons you can take from it. And that's yeah, what that's, I've taken from this. That's Absolutely. very good. Well, um, we'll, we'll have to say a reluctant goodbye, but um, 
For everyone listening, uh, you can get a copy of Law by Alexandra Brachan at your local bookstore or online at Booktopia. And um, I will also say all of her amazing backlist titles and brightly woven the graphic novel. Gosh, you're busy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, it's, I got to keep myself busy. Got to keep writing the stories and get them out of my head. Thanks for listening and never stop reading. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au